going fission. Australia's Nuclear Technology Podcast. Hello listeners, I have a new episode of Going Fishing for you. Today my guest is Dr. Joanne Lackenby, Opal Regulatory and Licensing Officer at ANSTO, also the current President of the Australian Nuclear Association, but as you will surely find out, these are by no means the only feathers in her hat. Enjoy the episode. G'day Dr. Joanne Lackenby, how are you this evening? Oh, fantastic, thank you Dr. Logan, I suspect. Oh, I'm not a doctor. Oh, you're not a doctor? <laughs> Just uh, um, yes, no, that's fine. Just a uh, bachelor's and a master's for me. That's a uh, that was enough. That was enough. I looked at the PhD program. And I thought, ooh, that's a lot of commitment. Um, but yes, no. So I um, look. Um, thank you for uh, for coming on and appearing on Going Fishing. It's uh, great to have you. Um, look, I'm going to jump right into it. So your education. You started off in enviro engineering and also did a PhD in geotechnical engineering. Can you sort of elaborate how you got into that and how that started you off? I sure can, and thanks for the invite to talk to you today. I'm very excited to be going fissioning with you. So <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lifelong dream, maybe not a lifelong dream, a dream for a few years, years now to talk to you and, and to appear on your podcast. So thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for, uh, thanks for making the time. <laughs> uh, so back when I was in high school, I actually played a lot of field hockey. So for a time there, I was going to be a physio because I was hanging out with physios and exercise physiologists and, and those sorts of professions uh, quite a bit. Um, but my brother was studying engineering and he seemed to be enjoying himself. So I actually decided that maybe engineering would be a better fit for me because I like the practicality of you know, identifying solutions and solving solutions. Uh, so I chose environmental engineering in particular because of my love for the environment. So I really wanted to find practical ways to reduce some of the world's um, pollution problems. That's pretty much as easy as that. I had a, a, a role model who I was close to, my brother, doing engineering, looks good, and the environmental side because getting out there in the bush is one of the most favourite things I used to do and, and currently still do today. Very good. And so how did that lead over into a career in nuclear? Well, what triggered the interest in the nuclear side of things? I think that the interest at uni triggered because as part of an engineering degree, you need to do an honours thesis. So I was giving a big long list of honours thesis and none of them really jumped out at me as amazing. But I'd heard of this place called Ansto, which wasn't too far from where I was living in Wollongong. Um, and I had a by that time, a bit of a fascination with nu nuclear in general. I think I found it a little bit mysterious and controversial. So I said to somebody at Wollongong Uni, how about I go and do my undergraduate thesis at ANSTO? I want to look at radioactive waste because, you know, waste is a, perceived by many. Radioactive waste is perceived by many to be a big problem. So I thought I want to go and find out more about it. So I guess it started as in my undergraduate um, degree as part of that environmental engineering degree to, to look at how what is waste and how, what can we practically do with waste to solve the waste problem in what do you call those things speech marks uh, quote unquote or quote unquote yes. yeah. yeah yeah fair um, enough so yeah. well that obviously a um led you into your, your current career because your occupation for the last decade has been the opal regulatory and licensing operator at ansto is that correct um officer not operator Officer, my It would apologies. be cool to be able to touch all the buttons in the control room, but I'm not allowed <laughs> to do that. 
Yeah, fair enough. So, I, um, oh, look, for those who, who don't know, and I imagine a lot of my listeners do, but for those who don't, what is Opal? What is Opal? So, before I answer that, I'll quickly talk about Australia's nuclear history, if that's okay with you. Go for it. Very, very briefly, like I didn't know that the HIFAR reactor was the first reactor built in Australia and I didn't know until very recently that HIFAR in Sydney was one of the first civilian research reactors built in the world. Wow. It was also the first nuclear reactor in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so if we go back to the 1950s, Australia was actually kind of leading the way in, in building reactors. We built this one reactor anyway called HIFAR for civilian use. Um, we then built another reactor called Moata in the 60s, I think, that operated to the 90s. Yep. So Opal is Australia's third research reactor. It first went critical in 2006, so it's now 2022, so that makes it about 16 years old now. So it's been operating for 16 years. Um, Opal stands for Open Pool Australian Light Water Reactor. We really wanted it to spell Opal. I think we did. <laughs> remember that Opal was a reactor before it came a, um, a ticketing system for the network of oh, trains in Sydney, and buses yes. and ferries in Sydney and before it became a tower that got some bad press a few years ago. Yeah, so Opal, not... the Opal reactor is the original use of Opal um, in terms of technology in New South Wales. Yeah, nice one, nice one. Okay, so if we go back to the... Uh, Opal Regulatory and Licensing Officer. Officer, yes. Um, what is that role? Well, the way I like to describe it is if you want to drive a car, you have to have a license to drive the car. And once you have a license, you need to, or you're expected to follow certain road rules. So that's Makes kind sense. of how driving works. Um, when it comes to Opal, Opal also has a license to operate. And we have a license, we have to do certain things at certain times. So my job is a bit like a, a backseat driver, so I'm not a manager. I don't have sort of the, the managerial responsibility, but my job is kind of like sitting in the back of the car and talking to the managers in the front seat and saying, hey, we need to do this. Um, maybe we should go this way because this law says this, um, that kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, um, I imagine any engineers would be listening to this and thinking, mm, yes, regulations and standards and protocol. Is this, yes, this all makes sense. Yeah. yeah. About nuclear and the aircraft industry, they're probably the two most regulated industries in the world. I'd believe it, yeah. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. So did you go pretty much straight from your, from your PhD um, into that role? Well, I actually did a PhD in something not even related to nuclear at all. Oh, no, you, no, you did say it was the... Um, Geotechnical engineering. Geotechnical. So I'm actually an expert in railway foundations. Nice. <laughs> so it was a little bit different to what I'm doing now, but it was a great opportunity at the time to do a PhD in rail because I'm also obviously someone who likes the environment, interested in um, public transport and those kinds of things and trying yep. to make the, the train foundations um, improve just a little bit. So ballast is fun, but these rocks just aren't quite exciting enough. I want the spicier rocks. Oh, yeah, I want the... I was going to say uranium rocks, but my job <laughs> has nothing to do with uranium either. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay. Yes, so, um, I did work as, for a couple of years as a consulting geo-environmental engineer. Yep. So doing was that outside? It was within a separate organisation? Oh, sorry, yeah. They were called um, Douglas Partners. 
Oh, yes, yep, I know them. Yep. So I'd go out into the field and take a lot of soil and water samples for mm -hmm. either environmental purposes, i.e. what's in this ground, what's in the water, how can we fix that sort of environmental issue, or what's in the ground, will it support a 10-storey building, or how deep do you have to dig down to support a 10-storey building, um, what's in the ground if we're going to put houses there, um, those sorts of investigations. Yep. Definitely. No, it was actually a um, quite last project I was on was a uh, it was the first time I'd actually been out in a project where this has actually happened. But they were building the suspended slab as opposed to a slab on ground in terms of concrete building foundations. And this was the interesting one because where it was building, the ground was all slop, like really absorbing, really reactive clay. And the idea, if it gets a little bit wet, it all swells up, and you can't put a normal concrete slab on that because the swelling of that ground will just crack it to pieces. So it's all got piles all underneath it and there is hollow voids underneath it for place for that soil to a uh, to fill into. So yeah, it's all you know one of these things you don't normally see when you go to a school and you just go to the building and sit down on a nice classroom that seems very, very solid and very stable. Look, I do know some houses that have quite sh shrinky and swelly soil underneath, so depending on whether it's wet or dry, the house will, oh, cracks will open and close. <laughs> That helps. Well, yeah, concrete does that a little bit as well, and that's why we put Rio Bar in there. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah, just before we uh, um, leave what you did with Answer, can you sort of describe any sort of major projects you undertook? So, with any bit of uh, high-tech kit, such as a nuclear reactor, what you want to do is do upgrades, because uh, from time to time, parts become obsolete. You can't replace them anymore. Better technology has come up. So Vacuum tubes. The... What's that, sorry? Vacuum tubes. Vacuum tubes, or even um, computer IT equipment, yeah. right? It, yep. it becomes obsolete really quick. So some of the projects and some of the things Opals we need to do is is upgrade equipment quite a bit. Yep. What's really important to, important to our users? So we use Opal for a few things. Um, one of the main ones is nuclear medicine. We make over eighty percent of the nuclear medicine used in Australia for a variety of different purposes. Uh, we also do a lot of scientific research and we irradiate things for industry. So, so they're the three main uses. But what's really import, important to the users, in particular international researchers coming to Australia to use the beam lines, um, is being able to operate when we say we're going to operate. So being available as much as possible to people when they need to use it, but also being reliable. So if we're going to say we're operating, to hopefully be operating. Yes. It sounds a bit like a um, the research equivalent of capacity factor, but I, do you use that term there or in, in <laughs> at Opal, or is it more just availability time or what have well, you? Availability is we have to have shutdowns and we plan them, you know, in advance, months and months in advance, so mm. that we can minimise how long they go for, but so that users know when they are. Mm. Um, but reliability sounds a bit like capacity factor, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's just the nature of having a multi-million or slash multi-billion dollar asset. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's at a research facility like Anstor or, you know, at a mining facility because, you know, we would have shutdowns on a piece of equipment and everyone is counting how long that is shut down for because that is money, especially in a, um, the private sector. Every hour that it is offline is money that you are not making. So, yes, shutdowns are very, very well planned out and very focused. And I can imagine it'd be no different at, uh, at Anstow. Yeah, the uh, operations and maintenance and engineering teams are very, very good at planning shutdowns now. So um, points to them for sure. 
So the projects, the things we kind of do to improve operations at Opal are things around trying to trip-proof the reactor, so minimise our unplanned trips and unplanned shutdowns, uh, ensuring we have high standards for spares, things like yep. that. So a lot of asset management planning um, and looking into the future. So Opal has an operating licence for 40 years. Well, we kind of renew it sort of every 10 years. Yep. But after 40 years... Um, It'd be great if you could make it last to 50, 60, even even more years. So a lot of the planning, even 16 years into operation, is looking sort of beyond 40 years and how we can get there and get the best out of this asset for all Australians. Right, nice one. It's kind of interesting that I've got you at this point because I hear you're on the cusp of a bit of a career change at this moment. So would you like to elaborate on that? I sure can. So... Um, I had to, or didn't have to, I chose to make a decision um, earlier this year for a bit of a career change. So I think what Ansto and Opal does is amazing. I love working there. I love the people. It, it is a great a great place to work, but I've decided to go back to consultancy like I did before I started working um, at Ansto yep. um, for a, an engineering consulting con company doing safety assurance. So similar to what I do now, making sure we're doing all the things we need to do to keep Opal nice and safe, but for doing it over other industries too, um, energy, transport, comms, defence, a, a whole range um, of different uh, industries. I don't know exactly what <laughs> projects I'll be working on when I do start there, but it's exciting because I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be some energy in there because I came to the realisation that even though I love working at Anstow and Opal, my real passion is energy. And I want to, you know, try to make a, a positive impact on the energy situation in this country. Outside of your professional career, you're also the current president of the Australian Nuclear Association. Not to say that that's not a professional engagement, but I don't think you get paid for that. We do not, no. No. Um, <laughs> as much as, you know, we're all supposed to be receiving uh, nuclear dollars from the evil nuclear shill lobby, but say, um, that's another question again. So, yes, you took over from that from Mark Ho in 2020. Um, how have you found this role? Oh, it's really exciting. I mean, working at a nuclear reactor, the Opal reactor is great, um, but my actual day job doesn't involve any of the passion that I have for energy. So it's working for the Australian Nuclear Association, working, volunteering, I should say, not working. Uh, it's great because it kind of forces you in a way to um, know what's going on internationally in the nuclear energy space. Um, the ANA is not only about nuclear energy, though. We're about, obviously, what's going on in Australia with our nuclear science and our technology and, and the great things we're doing in this country outside of energy. It's really exciting, but it's it's kind of becomes a little bit easier because we've got a fantastic um, committed committee um, who's very switched on and very professional, and so it's it's it's, an, it's easier to lead an organisation when the people you're working with um, you know what they're doing. So um, thank you to the committee. You're wonderful. Excellent. I'm sure they'll be a uh, very glad to hear that. Um, is there sort of a current focus of the Australian Nuclear Association, or is it say um, like do you bring your own sort of drive or vision for it when you take on a role as, as the president of the organisation or sort of has that, can you yeah, talk to I that? Yeah, I think I've brought a bit of my own vision and a bit of my passion to what the ANA is doing, but I guess our number one focus is always our members, mm. trying to work out what our members want um, and hearing what our members want um, and, and providing. So we do do a lot of technical talks and educational pieces for members. Um, 
which is wonderful because where else in Australia do you really hear about nuclear issues? Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit in the news in the last six months or so, particularly in the last in the last month. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, considering the uh, the condition of the national electricity market at the moment, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish it was under better circumstances. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, uh, we've actually got our AGM coming up, and we're looking at having a talk on the Opal Reactor. So it's very important that our members are also well aware and, and can find out what's happening in the domestic scene as well. Uh, we also like to provide a network to our members as well, put each other in touch on certain topics so we can all help each other, support each other, provide information to each other, mm. uh, that kind of thing. Um, the thing that I think I, I brought to the ANA more... So maybe more focusing is our public outreach. So up until recently, we weren't really involved in doing things like uh, press releases or trying to get um, professional people like ourselves. So many members of the ANA are very clued on when it comes to nuclear tech and we're the kind of people I think that the Australian public most needs to hear from uh, about nuclear tech. Because we kind of... We know the science, we know the engineering, but what we can always do is improve on the communication side of that. So we've really been looking at how we can sort of get outside of that nuclear bubble that we find ourselves stuck in quite often um, to talk to the community. Basically the nuclear industry as a whole, Possibly. worldwide. <laughs> well, I think yes and no. I mean, I speak to a lot of sort of nuclear advocates around the world and probably 99% of them are like me. We're all volunteers. We do it because we're passionate about it. We're not doing it because we're getting paid to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people may be, but most of us, we just think it's such a worthwhile uh, topic and technology to talk about that if we're not doing it, no one's going to be doing it. Mm. Oh, it's definitely improved, but um, it's, I mean, it's quite amazing to see what the likes of... Um, uh, uh, Generation Atomic and um, oh, Decouple and at uh, COP26? Last year, yes. Last year's one, yes. So the, the nuclear break dances, which was, well, if nothing else, it was just fun to watch. I think what we are starting to see is a lot more sort of younger people getting really passionate and interested in nuclear energy um, for the climate change angle mostly, but also just for energy reliability and security as well. I think the younger, the younger generations, if I can call it that, don't have the same sort of sort of history and knowledge of the early days of nuclear that some mm. other folk might have, and haven't got so much of the fear factor. I don't think, and they're the ones who are really coming forward now, and pushing nuclear as an option. Mm. I think they see it as an option. It provides hope, if you, for want of a better description. I mean, we can see. I mean, it's 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 becoming very very obvious that intermittent renewables on their own do not pull their weight what with you know the suspension of the NEM here what with the issues going on in Europe right now um, I think people even now I think especially are really looking for well we need other options and so many other countries are pursuing nuclear sort of more robustly and eagerly than they have in a long time yeah well France and uh, France and Britain I suppose are the two that spring to mind since COP26 probably yes but yeah China's going crazy. Oh, but that that is... They've been doing that for at least the last 20 years, probably and, longer. And they're going crazy on everything. It's not just yeah. nuclear. They're building everything they can, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. So you were also, prior to 
being the president of the Australian Nuclear Association, you were the president of the Women in Nuclear Australian chapter for several years. Uh, now, that's currently been handed over to Lieutenant Colonel Jasmine Deer, but um, how was that, and how do you find these two organisations compare in being the president for both of them? Well, first I'll say that I cannot speak highly enough of Lieutenant Colonel Jasmine Diab. She is absolutely amazing, and hopefully you can talk to her in, in a future podcast. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that will be arranged. So there's three sort of volunteer, probably at least three. There's three I'll talk about volunteer organisations in Australia. There's Women in Nuclear Australia, the Australian Nuclear Association, and Australian Young Generation in Nuclear. So all three of these organisations have some overlap in in what they do. They obviously all like to talk about nuclear things. Um, the levels of advocacy are kind of a little bit different. So the ANA's focus is more around probably energy compared to those other organisations. Um, but they also will be have factual discussions and, and, and do events with factual information on nuclear energy. Uh, but just comparing WIN and the ANA, the ANA is probably slightly more energy focused, um, but Women in Nuclear Australia is probably slightly more women in STEM focused as well. So looking at diversity inclusion in STEM workforces because STEM is science, technology, engineering and maths. So women in nuclear will also look at diversity issues a little bit more than the ANA will. So that's probably the main differences. Would you like to tell us about how Dr Joanne Lackenby became a superstar of STEM? Probably about three or four years ago, I was keen and eager and wanting to do outreach on, on nuclear energy. And it's one of those, unfortunately, a topic that can be quite divisive. And I didn't have a lot of confidence about how to go out and talk about it. I hadn't been trained, basically, in how to do this. Uh, but Science and Technology Australia, um, who also runs Science Makes Parliament, right. um, have a program that I started called Superstars of STEM. And what it is, it's, it's training up uh, women from all different STEM backgrounds um, in how to speak to politicians, how to speak to media, and how to sort of get your message out there in, in the best way that you can do it. I was successful in making it into this program, and it was two years of training. Oh, wow. Two years of training. So it kind of it gives people confidence to, to go out and to do things like podcasts or go on the radio or go on a TV show or whatever it may be. Uh, it, it's particularly aimed at females because of, I guess, Science and Technology Australia recognised that a lot of the uh, experts being interviewed on TV, on radio, etc., happened to be males and that maybe it was time to try to help get more females out there I'm doing these things as well. I mean, there's experts in all fields across mm. all the genders, So, but this particular program was, was focused on um, females. I guess the second part of the program is also for us to be role models for young people of all genders again to, to try to get more people into STEM. Um, we need more scientists, technologists, engineers and mathematicians, I think, in my personal view, and, and less business folk. <laughs> can oh, I say that? I can see it myself. You're like, well, just... On the engineering side of things, yeah, we in Australia have kind of dropped the ball in educating enough engineers to basically meet the demand of ourselves. I'm sure that exists across the other areas of STEM as well. So we um, have role models, sorry, particularly for females, but I've done uh, talks to all sorts of kids about why they should study engineering in particular. Oh, yeah, that's a great, a great field to be in. 
these skills that you've developed in public outreach must have come in fairly handy because uh, very recently, earlier this year, I think it was around about March it aired, but it was probably filmed earlier, uh, you appeared on Channel 9's uh, current affair program called Under Investigation with Liz Hayes. Now, uh, you featured on this with uh, former head of ANSTO, Dr. A.D. Patterson, and uh, along with, well, it was a roundtable discussion with a, uh, a number of anti-nuclear campaigners. Yeah, as a look, as a viewer sort of familiar with this issue, I thought the whole program was a bit of a textbook ex- example of how uh, sort of modern mainstream re- media gets presenting nuclear all wrong for the benefit of sensationalism on the on the topic. But um, I don't know, how did you find it? How was the whole... It was frustrating for me to watch. I can only imagine what it was like for you to be in the hot seat. So I can confirm I was on the TV show under investigation and I was asked to uh, participate specifically to represent the younger generations. I won't go into how many decades there were in age between myself and the next youngest person on that particular episode of the show. Um, Obviously, I've also got some some credentials as well that made me suitable. (laughs) (laughs) Like the president of the ANA, that's a fairly good uh, credential. Um, I guess, I don't know where to start with this one. Cause, um, I Run us through sort of the, the process of how they approached you. I'm just trying to remember how I was approached. It could have been on LinkedIn, I believe. Yeah, right. But one of the um, producers. producers called yeah, up yeah. and we had, we had a chat. And we had several chats, actually, and they got my views on particular things they wanted to put in the show. And I guess they liked me or liked what I had to say. Yeah, okay, so the producers got in touch with you, they contacted you, obviously they invited you onto the program. Um, now, obviously, as a viewer, it was, what, a half-hour program, uh, interspersed with, I guess, they took the spiciest bits out of the exchanges around the table, and uh, and so we got, like, 10 minutes of that discussion mixed in with, like, 30 minutes of uh, footage of a, of a tsunami in Fukushima. How long was that discussion? What was that discussion around the table like? You pretty much nailed it, Logan. Um, it was a, about a four-hour filming session. Oof. So the show was about 40 minutes, you're right. Probably at least half of that was commentary. So then you sort of down to, not that I timed it, but then you sort of down to about 20 minutes. So four hours. Um, I think there were 12 cameras. Yep. There were, everybody had a microphone on, and there were about 20 production staff doing various bits and pieces behind the scenes, including hair and makeup, which I thought was <laughs> quite useful. Yep. Um, so what they – if you can imagine five of us on the table plus, uh, plus Liz Hayes and we're all quite passionate people who have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I went in there a little bit naively thinking that there might actually be more in-depth discussion. Um, but the conversation kind of tended to jump around quite a bit. Yeah. What I kind of did learn, though, is if you're going on a show like this, um, how important it is to have your short sound bites ready to go. Yeah, that's what that's, they mine for. I, that's I don't what they're anyone's, looking for. Yeah. Short, sharp, witty, if you can make it short and sharp, and this is what they're going to put on the air. You mm. might be having a conversation about how... Uh, what protections nuclear power plants have against tsunamis. And none of that's going to get published or presented. It won't. And I'll be trying to answer the question um, of, you know, that, that, that Liz or whoever it may be has asked, and then somebody else will just jump in with a soundbite that has nothing to do with 
tsunamis whatsoever, and that's what gets shown. So yeah. the importance of having a good opening statement, a fantastic closing statement, and being able to hit the issues kind of short and sharp. I mean, we see it again and again. I mean, this is uh, this is why so much of the mainstream media, I think, is struggling for and losing a lot of its viewership to unconventional media such as podcasts and they, uh, and you know what you see online and YouTube and whatnot and for better or for worse but yeah some of these yeah some of these podcasts do give the option to actually have a discussion and get into the nitty-gritty of a um, of a particular subject which you just can't do on 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 a um, conventional media oh it's true we we well I, I was trying to have a, a conversation and perhaps other people were as well but yeah, <laughs> it didn't kind of go how I thought it was. I probably was a little bit ignorant of what I was walking into. It was filmed in October and it aired in March. Yep. Um, so five months is a long time to wait because when you've got four hours of footage, how a particular TV channel decides to cut that it can be a mystery, mm. <laughs> if you know what I mean. And I get quite nervous about having to wait five months. Yeah, well, I mean, just... <laughs> Yeah, the very idea that you wait five, especially in how fast um, you know the news cycle happens today, it still it strikes me as very strange that they could actually wait five months to film that and sit on it for five months, and then, I mean, I suppose all you can do is pretty much cut it down to all the stuff that it doesn't matter that was five months ago. I suppose it's obviously it obviously wasn't something that was up to date in this current era where news is constantly happening and very, very quickly, the news cycle and whatnot. Well, I guess it did air um, on near, near to the 11th anniversary of the Fukushima accident. That's when it aired. Yeah, okay, in the March. Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. I, I think in, in general, though, I think Channel 9 did do a pretty good job. I mean, TV is about entertainment first and foremost. Yeah, okay. Even though it was sensationalised, like I lost count of how many times we get, we got to see the uh, hydrogen explosion. Yep. Right? Yep. <laughs> Once may have been enough, but I think it was almost like after every ad break, it was sort of like a reintroduction to the topic again that often featured that hydrogen explosion. Yeah, true. Um, but at least the show, I think as, as a positive, we were able to get nuclear energy and some of its positives and benefits into mainstream media. Mm. Well, that is true. And, I, and not to sort of... Uh, not to sort of suck up to you or anything, but I thought yourself and AD did conduct yourselves very well on that program. Uh, and, yeah, and I've just, I don't know, I mean, some of the other presenters or some of the other guests in, uh, that were invited there, I think, oh, yeah, they they possibly unwittingly did the pro-nuclear uh, moment, uh, movement a favour in how they conducted themselves. Look, I, I also feel like they showed the best of what people had to say as well. They weren't out to show anything really bad of what anyone had to say because at times it did quite get quite tense. And I said, "Oh, you could that see I wish that." I could pull back in. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, I hope that doesn't make it to the edge. Be professional. Be, prof <laughs> be professional. Um, yeah, but they showed the better things that people had to say. Oh, that was that's something. Be, and also, so, okay, so you've had this uh, uh, this interest more in, in public outreach and communication. Have you got sort of any other aces up your sleeves or anything else you'd like to share coming up, something we could look out for? Look, I think if we look at polls and things throughout Australia, particularly on nuclear energy, there's quite a bit of support for 
considering at least this technology in Australia. Um, what I'm interested in is obviously maintaining the support from people who already support it, but also looking for sort of different audiences who may be able to have their minds changed if, if they hear some interesting information. So um, I'm pretty excited uh, because in August um, I'll be appearing on this stage of Sydney Town Hall as part of TEDx Sydney 2022. Ooh, exciting. Oh, it is exciting. Uh, so far, I don't know how many hours I've spent on my script, but I'm still going. It's one of those things, if you want to prepare for an event such as this, you do spend a lot of time first working out what your message actually is and then how you're going to deliver it to, to have the biggest impact. Um, so this event's on the 5th of August. It has a live audience of up to 2,000 people, I believe. Nice. Uh, plus TEDx Sydney is one of the sort of bigger TEDx events in the country, so I'm hoping the final produced video will have many, many thousands of views. That, that's my aim. So I can't talk about the specific topic because that has to be kept a little bit quiet, but I I'm excited by what I will be talking about and hopefully I'll be able to bring a brand new perspective um, to something in nuclear that people are often concerned about. Oh, excellent. Well, it certainly sounds like it'll be a chance that you can actually spend, oh, what, 20 minutes or so speaking without... Uh, it'll be a, it'll be a way you could pitch an idea. It won't be a um, a panel forum, which can get a little bit interrupty. I can get us get up there and talk. It won't quite be twenty minutes, but get up there and talk, and hopefully um, make people smile instead of frown. Yeah, not nice clear. <laughs> well, that is exciting. All right, something to look out for. Joanne Lackenby, thank you very much for appearing on Going Fishing. Thank you uh, so much for having me on. I've enjoyed fishing with you. <laughs> no trouble. Until next time. Thank you. And that's the end of the episode. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks again to Dr. Joanne Lackenby for making some of her time available to speak with me for this podcast. I have included in the show notes a number of links to organisations mentioned but also a link to the episode of Under Investigation that Joanne appeared on, as well as the link to TEDx Sydney 2020, which Joanne will be presenting at later this year. Thanks again, and until next time.